Maybe we just don't compete in the same game. Maybe we create an entirely new game where we can build everything from our cultural knowledge, language and law and our ways of knowing, being and doing, and where we don't have to be benchmarked against what they say is where we should be. This is Techcetera, a podcast by Ericsson about the intersection of technology, culture, etc. I'm your host, Sarah Goss, and I'm Head of Innovation at Ericsson. Australia is home to the oldest living cultures in the world. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities have shaped and told the story of Australia for thousands of years. But today, much of these incredible cultures are confined to rural areas, disconnected from mainstream Australia. In this episode of Techcetera, we explore how the latest in technology and digital skills education is helping to protect and ensure the future of these ancient cultures, bridging the cultural and digital divide between Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities. Today we'll speak with Luke Briscoe, CEO and founder of Indigilab. Committed to an Indigenous rights approach to sustaining and championing Indigenous careers in STEAM, Luke and Indigilab's mission is to provide education, training and opportunities for Indigenous communities in science, technology and innovation. You'll also hear from Michaela Jade, CEO and founder of Indigital, Australia's first Indigenous edutech company. Partnering with everyone from schools to museums, Indigital's mission is to close the digital and cultural divide by creating a pathway for Indigenous people into the digital economy. So, let's get into the conversation. Luke, can you tell me more about the mission of your company in DigiLab? In DigiLab started in 2015 with a mission really to uh, look at how we can apply a human rights-based approach to developing our projects and programs that really support the continuation of Indigenous cultures throughout engagement in science and technology. Yeah, one of our first programs that we ran for youth was the boomerang to the drone. So showing those linkages with how old technologies are still being used today and will be used into the future. Our projects are really to really encourage and inspire our kids to see how vastly important their ancient knowledges are to really drive the future of science. To encourage and inspire kids, I think you can relate to that mission, Michaela. Hello to you as well. Please tell us about yourself and how STEAM and STEAM education, that is science, technology, engineering, the arts and maths, helps to advance Indigenous communities, technologies and culture through the work that you do at your company in digital. I'm a Cabrical woman from the Darug speaking nations in Sydney. So my community actually is smack bang in the middle of one of Australia's largest cities. And we do continue our culture on country and also off country. I created in digital in 2012, actually, as a bit of a side hustle to look at how could we use the world's oldest living knowledge systems to represent in augmented and mixed reality technologies. And we made the first Indigenous augmented reality storytelling application in 2016 from Kakadu National Park, which is very exciting, but also incredibly expensive. And 
It cost around $200,000 to build our first application, which involved me taking out a massive business loan and trying to repay that on a park ranger's salary. I experienced firsthand the frustration of being a first person and trying to understand a new technology, trying to fund a new technology and trying to really get a pilot off the ground in frontier technologies. And from that experience, I realised we're so under-resourced, we're so underskilled, we don't have the linkages into industry to allow us to even see what future technologies are coming down the pipeline. And I really wanted to solve that problem. So I ended up partnering with Microsoft and Telstra in 2018 to develop an artificial intelligence-based augmented reality production platform, which would remove the financial barrier, it would remove the digital skills barrier, and in our old people and our young people to embrace this new kind of storytelling, which actually isn't new. Our old people have always seen visions on country. We're really helping communities embrace new technologies and dream for themselves what the possibility space is in frontier technologies. So we really provide a framework and communities that we work with bring their own cultural knowledge, language and law to the table and really dream up what they'd like to do for their communities in the technology. Michaela, why STEAM rather than STEM, which we perhaps more commonly hear? What's the importance of arts alongside the technical disciplines? Yeah, this is a great question. So art, what is art? A lot of people refer to Aboriginal art. They're not artworks to us. They're lessons, they're knowledge. They all express knowledge, language and law. But art and science were never really separated in the start and they certainly weren't separated for 80,000 years in our cultures. They're one and the same, they're knowledge systems. So I think it's really important that we do include art in STEAM and rather not just focus on STEM. And the other thing that's really exciting about leaning into the arts is creativity and that's something that we're really going to need as communities moving forward, building in new technologies, working alongside technologies such as machine learning and robotics and really being able to flex that creative side of human engineering and imagination to lean into technology development that's going to be sustainable and inclusive. We've touched on a little bit the idea of the digital divide, which refers to the gap between people who have access and benefit from modern information and communications technology and then those who don't or who have restricted access. And Luke, you mentioned a focus on Indigenous rights Can you expand on the challenges and how it shapes the way in which Indigenous communities embrace and view technology? So there's a big issue with diversity in general, with technology and the application of technology, the need for technology. It's a global thing. You know, Indigenous communities have needs, so do other different sectors of society. So I think it's really important to really understand when we talk about technology, what are the real cultural drivers? And my question always is, well, if UNESCO is saying that culture is the big driver of technology, well then whose knowledge are you using? And if you're using Indigenous knowledge systems around AI, 
and augmented reality, well, how are the community engaged with that process? And, you know, what is the governance structure in how knowledge is used in these various agendas? I think a lot of issues of the past around, you know, lack of diversity and technology and design and link back to the fact that there's not much good governance around how technology is used in general. So Indigenous peoples have a really, really good track record of good governance and how we manage culture and how we manage technology in a way that it's sustainable. So when I talk about a rights-based issue, getting Indigenous people into STEM careers, but in a way that their sciences and their knowledge is, is supported and protected, I see that that is a important platform for all people. It's been widely accepted that by the um, top scientists uh, around climate change that governments need to work with Indigenous peoples to solve the problem of climate change. And we know that technology and culture, those two combined, is a big driver for this. On that idea of the importance of the governance structure, can you bring to life what that looks like in practice? What does good look like in your view? Firstly, Indigenous peoples aren't even recognised in the constitution. That's one of the first issues is that in terms of government accepting Indigenous peoples and knowledge, we don't have treaties in place, we don't have a constitution that recognises Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. For our work, we want to work with community to design and develop Indigenous cultural indicators. So for Indigilab and partners that we work with, there's Indigenous cultural indicators that align to things like sustainable development goals mapped to also the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and the Article embedded in those rights. The way that the Indigenous cultural indicators work is that it allows for community to control the conversations about what startups need to be created, you know, what technology should be used on land to manage culture better. And it's partly negotiation, Indigenous cultural indicators, but it's also Indigenous peoples asserting their right and saying, hey, this is what we need. And then by doing this, you know, having Indigenous cultural indicators and using the declaration changes the value systems about how people people see Indigenous science and knowledge systems. Michaela, one of the things that Luke touched on was the interplay between technology and culture. And I think while technology protects culture, is it also changing it? I think technology has always changed and advanced cultures and that's evident from not just digital technologies but the technologies that we've invented throughout our 80,000 year journey on this place. And I absolutely love working in the futuristic space with communities and looking at what do our cultures look like when we extend them through technology enablement? What do they look like when we think about society 5.0? when we're looking at vitality and well-being and environmental sustainability and more of a human-centered society. I think it's really nice to see people not just leaning on human advancement through a technology lens, but we're looking at it through a human-centered lens. And I think that's very exciting for our mobs because we've got opportunities here to really express what does it mean to be a dark woman in 2170. I think that's really exciting to think about what the future entails for our cultures. And I really resist this idea that my peoples need to be in the past and we need to continue all our practices in the way that Europeans observed us when they came to our country. We have 
incredible knowledge systems about not just this version of the world, but other metaverses and other realms. And we've got opportunities to really showcase and share with particularly developers around the metaverse what it means to walk with responsibility, reciprocity and relationship in this physical place, but also in the multi-dimensions of cyberspace that we're building as well. Building on that, how have you seen Indigenous communities embrace this latest version of technology and digital skills? What are some examples you can share? One that comes to mind from last week actually was the team were out at Birdsville on Mangatiri country in uh, the very far west of Queensland. It's right on the edge of the desert. And Uncle Don Rowlands was wearing HoloLens too, and he was able to bring some holograms forward on his country and he said the way that I see this technology enhancing our cultural knowledge systems and the sharing of language and law on his country was the ability for this technology to light up the pathway of information that he can see when he's on country he can use this to light it up for others and he was really excited about that. That's repeated around the country when we go and work with communities they're seeing the new technology and Our mobs get it straight away. We're like, oh, finally the technology's caught up with the way that we actually see the world. And it just allows us to mould and shape our knowledge system so we can do that intergenerational sharing of knowledge in a way that competes with a younger generation that's into hip-hop, that's into playing Xbox and games and in a way that they really see themselves in the technology. I think something that has been really exciting recently is we worked with Xbox in the National Indigenous NADOC Minecraft Challenge. We created the first Xboxes wrapped in Maggie Jean Douglas's NADOC artwork. So it was a physical piece of hardware that was wrapped in a traditional story where our mob can see themselves from very first looking at the hardware before they even play games in there. And the opportunities for our kids and our old people to work together and create games that we can play in these new technologies and indeed our own metaverses is incredibly exciting. It's so important for any disadvantaged or marginalised groups to see themselves reflected in popular culture and that Xbox example is just wonderful. Must have been really rewarding to see it actually. It's so exciting. I've got it on my desk because it's going to be given, gifted to the winning kids um, next (laughs) week. But I'm just like, I wish I could keep it. It's so beautiful. (laughs) Luke, one of the things that you've spoken um, about throughout this conversation is a lot about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs. And of course, a strong connection to land is so central to Indigenous culture. So in this context, what's the imperative of environmental sustainability in the adoption and application of technology from your perspective? So the connection to technology from Indigenous perspectives is always about how can we preserve land? How can we link into land better and and also use it in a way where we can develop and continue culture. And I think that's the that's the main thing really is the good governance structures that Indigenous peoples had around developing technologies from the past, now and into the future. Michaela, in your work at Indigital, what are you witnessing in how improving digital skills for Indigenous peoples is leading to business and economic benefits for them and their communities as we think about Society 5.0 and Industry 4.0? 
Well, I think something exciting is happening. I get excited about a lot of things, but one of them is the absolute explosion of Indigenous business in Australia. Where I think technology plays a role in this is to help us compete. We can come up with great businesses. A lot of the businesses are anchored on our traditional knowledge, language and law, which is fantastic to see. But doing business, we have to do it in a Western way in order to compete. So being able to harness new technologies really helps us to be able to find new markets for our products, whether it's in Australia or internationally. Also being able to automate a lot of our workflow. And I think this is a really exciting part for our communities because particularly where our knowledge holders are involved in businesses, they have a lot of responsibilities across culture. So while they're developing and building and servicing their businesses, they're also carrying out cultural responsibilities, which take a lot of time. They're also being asked to come and consult on everything from justice to education to science to you can name it. We get asked to consult about that. What I'm saying is our mob are really stretched for time. So if we can automate parts of our business that don't need our cultural intellect to service the business, such as accounting, such as shipping, all those kinds of things that take a lot of human power if you do them manually, if we can automate those processes, it frees up time for us to do our other cultural responsibilities and also like have a more fulfilling experience of having a business and not getting overwhelmed. From the young people that we work with in schools in particular, being able to to showcase new technologies and imagine together what the future could look like gives children a language that they can use for a career pathway, whether that's into a a tech company or whether it's creating their own tech business or even just going into a corporate and working. We had a kid in Kauki who worked with us this year who saw virtual and augmented and mixed realities for the first time and we talked about engineering and software engineering and The little boy said, I didn't know I had engineering in my head and I want to be an engineer now. He had now had a vocabulary that he could connect with a pathway into the workforce. Just talking about it and reframing technology in a culturally sensitive and appropriate and accommodating way allows our community to actually see themselves in those careers. I think this is really cool around space as well. So a lot of landing launching facilities are on Indigenous lands in Australia. And at the moment, a lot of kids are struggling to see themselves having a space career because they believe you have to be super smart at maths and that only uh, kind of white males are in those roles and they don't have any role models that they can look up to to show them the way. It's being able to recreate the experience to tinker in some of the technology that's involved in space exploration can help our young people see themselves in those careers too. On the topic of jobs and career pathways, Luke, what are you seeing in terms of examples of how embracing technology and having good digital literacy is unlocking opportunities for Indigenous communities from a business and economic point of view? So we're seeing a lot of great initiatives out that really link into programs like ranger programs and it's so important, you know, that rangers are seen as the knowledge keepers of a lot of the work that communities are doing to sustain our cultures and knowledge systems. We need to invest 
time and energy to really um, make sure that our kids have career pathways that link into back into culture in a way that supports them. There's actually uh, some research out that looks at age groups from year seven to year 10. They're finding that kids that aren't supported culturally in this time period that they lose their connection to culture. So then culture has become a bit of a um, conduit to wanting to get more into education. Culture grounds you and we need to really think about how we support dual education or, you know, more Indigenous education opportunities. Another passion of yours, Michaela, is championing Indigenous women in STEAM. Why is this a passion of yours? <laughs> because I'm a woman, uh, <laughs> I think, look, having been an Indigenous woman uh, in cutting-edge technology in regional and remote communities and seeing how hard that has been over the last 10 years personally and firsthand, I will pour all my energy and resources into making sure that we have equality in opportunities for people on country, particularly women. Women can be excluded from education because we have caring responsibilities culturally and and non-culturally often we have the burden of the child caring responsibilities the level of investment in indigenous women in business is 0.007 percent when matched with investment in other women and men there's basically no investment and we really need to change that just the, the connection and networking that women do, I think the way that we work is different to men and I think that's great. We, we both bring certain aspects of our being into the businesses that we create or the careers that we have and there needs to be a balance. There's always been a balance between gender responsibilities in my culture and I'm sure in Luke's culture as well. We've been forging ahead on this technology journey with mostly white males and it really needs to change. There is a great movement of the male champions of change in the sector and it's really wonderful to see a lot of my colleagues standing up and saying, I'm, I'm not going to be on a mantle. I'm going to invest in women's enterprise and women's business and I think that's really exciting. And I, I really think that movement kind of coalesced around that 2018 NAIDOC theme because of her we can. We really saw the men step up around that theme and really put forward the women in their lives about how important they were to themselves and community. So, yes, I do champion women. I also champion Indigenous men as well. Um, but definitely women need that extra level of support to be able to enter into the realm of STEAM. The way that you learn about STEM in or STEAM in schools is very male-centric. So, uh, yeah, how many female engineers did you hear about when you were going through school? Um, you know, we heard about Marie Curie. That was about it. Um, so the whole narrative around STEAM in primary and secondary education in this country is heavily focused on the achievements of men. And we really need to uncover those women who contributed so much to our society and put them up on a pedestal. And that there was a, um, a wonderful teacher, Michelle Chong, in Western Australia this year, who went through and researched over 50 Australian women who have 
really championed or invented something or have just been incredible in their field. And she created posters that teachers around Australia could print out of all these wonderful women who are absolute leaders in their field in STEAM careers and just to inspire other girls in the classroom and to show the boys in the classroom that actually this is a women's domain as well. It's a really important point, that last one. I've got two sons. And for me, as a woman, of course, I want to see those role models and that representation of girls and women, but I also want my boys to see it. And I also think my colleagues who are men, you know, the men in my life and around me, I want them to see it too. Luke, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and we were just talking then about the classroom context, is how technology is helping to share Indigenous culture with non-Indigenous Australia. Reconciliation Australia uh, have developed a barometer uh, that looks at the relationship with Indigenous people and non-Indigenous Australians. And during these, you know, big events like 26th of January, there's really starting to be a shift in the conversation where it's accepted that a lot of majority of Australians want to change this date. So I produced a VR project in 2016 called Change the Date VR. I was in collaboration with Briggs and also Earthboy, brought together eight Australian well-known hip-hop artists to talk about this discussion around changing the date of Australia, really to bring youth to the discussion as well, because uh, changing the date seemed to be a discussion that older people were having. So, so really youth needed to be really involved in these deeper discussions around changing the date. But also what's important about what Michaela's doing is for Indigenous companies to have access to new technologies, new and emerging technologies, to be at the forefront of um, developing new technologies and stories that showcase culture and share our important stories and shape our own narratives around conversations like Change the Date. You know, I'm really interested in the day when we might actually see our first Indigenous internet service provider online. So I'd say there's still a lot of room that corporates and government can do to support these fundamental rights which are embedded in the Declaration, you know, the right to have our own infrastructures, our own education system. So it's a fundamental right for Indigenous peoples to have access to technologies and education that should be supported to sustain culture. I think you're right there, Luke. I think there is an epidemic of low expectation of our people. And I saw that myself as a developer trying to secure resources to actually build the vision that I had. And investors or potential investors would say to me, you're female, you're Indigenous, you're working in a frontier technology from a remote community. Like, that's just ridiculous. And also, who's your market, Michaela? Because Indigenous people don't use technology. That was quite widespread. Yeah, when I did my um, graduate certificate in screenwriting at Afters, I wrote a script that was based on a Yalanji storyline. And then my teacher proposed to me, who are you going to market to if you're writing it in Yalanji? It was just really sad in going through an Afters program, being told by my senior lecturer that, that I wasn't going to be able to produce this film because and I think you know that really is the big blockage is uh, education and who 
controls education, who controls these conversations on what a project gets picked over another project. And that's why I see it's important to have Indigenous cultural indicators as a starting point for projects so then you can map out some of those nuances. You know, is it a men's story? Is it a women's story? Particularly, I see a lot of projects around water that really relate to women's rights around water and connection to country. And it's widely accepted that women hold the stories around water. So when it comes to then around how we develop our projects and programs, you know, we need to really link it back to what is the Indigenous indicator for this project? How does it relate to ways in which we can ensure that the right people are embedded into this project and program? Indigenous Australians are some of the oldest scientists, inventors and artists in the world. So why don't more of us know that? How do we get that word out, Michaela? It has to start with education, um, as Luke is saying as well. I was taught as a Darug woman when I was going through my education that my country was bought from the local Aboriginal people, which were my own mob, for bags of flour and European pairs of scissors. And that was embedded in the education system. So I'm 42. There's a whole generation of Australians that have grown up with that kind of Indigenous education. We've got a lot of ground to cover and a lot of truth-telling to do to make up the general knowledge of the Australian population base about what the truth is about Australia and the many, many cultures that were here first. Over 300 nations of people, we're all independent with our own language systems, our own knowledge systems, our own law systems. So it's definitely not a homogenous group of us that claim to be first Australians. And I think even that common knowledge that there are so many different nations of people across Australia is even missing from the adult population in Australia. So yeah, I guess the burden has always been on our communities to educate others about our ways of knowing, being and doing. And people need to be taking responsibility for their own investigations into what happened and also meet us halfway in the truth telling. How does that resonate with you, Luke? Like Michaela said, meet us halfway. I see that's the that's the halfway mark is for educators and the broader Australia to really, we all need to accept this fact that we're from all parts of the world, but we can draw in our own strength and knowledge from our ancient cultures and practices and bring that to the table. If they want to really meet us halfway, they really have to reconnect with their ancient culture and practices and find out some of the faults in history that they've done, take ownership of that and then bring that to the table. I totally agree, Luke. It's very powerful when that happens. We do that in, in digital. So we do have Slovakian, Greek, Celtic people working in our company as well. And they've done a deep dive into their own personal heritage and makes such a huge difference when you're working in a business for people to have done that grounding to start with. Because there's so much more commonality than differences when you start looking into our ancestors. And just that even recognition that Indigenous people, we're not the only ones with ancestors. Everybody has ancestors. The special part of the direct culture is really respecting and leaning into what our ancestors, how they thought of us and what they did to prepare us for being custodians of country today. If everybody did that, imagine what kind of a world we'd be able to live in. And these are sometimes very difficult conversations. We were at Bruni Island, Lunawani, earlier this year. 
with a community of mostly colonising families who had been on the island for multiple generations who were able to hear from Arnie Julie Dunlop, who belongs to the community that Truganini belonged to on that island, and heard the story of Truganini from a relative who is alive today and heard the atrocities that happened that their ancestors did to this community of people. Horrendous, horrendous things that happened on that island. And the children were being told about this in, you know, we spoke about it in kindergarten all the way through to year six at that school. It was incredibly uncomfortable for the adults. But those children went home and some of the parents came back and told us the next day that it was the first time they've had an open dialogue about the history of their family and the, the role that their family played in the atrocities that happened to the community that lived on Lunawani. And that school has completely transformed this year into a school that completely embraces the heritage of both communities that live on that island. And the children are participating in cultural burning, in cultural restoration of the island, and the families are getting involved. And it's just been such an incredible transformation for having that difficult dialogue at the start in March. With that, reflection, introspection, accountability and openness, I think, to do the work to move forward and to take the steps to meet Indigenous communities and culture halfway. Luke, what's the outlook? Do you think we will close the digital and cultural divide? probably say the digital divide really is a construct of how the system works as well. So, you know, ultimately we can flick a switch and the digital divide doesn't have to exist, but because the market makes it exist. You know, so I think that's the first important point that corporations need to understand that they're at fault because of digital divide as much as education system is at fault as well and governments, you know, around this digital divide. So we've always used these opportunities, Indigenous peoples, whether or not they're bad or good, to have national conversations and, and to drive opportunities around business. Businesses uh, driving in Australia really need to accept some of the these deep issues in the past, but around the globe we have an opportunity to work with our Indigenous communities to develop technologies that are built on sustainable understanding and knowledge systems that's been embedded in place for thousands of years and Indigenous peoples need to also assert our rights and say, hey, you know, like you're not going to use this knowledge unless you provide a treaty, link us into the constitution, make sure that you use the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples because culture is really hard to change. The reason why I'm saying this is that, you know, I don't see how in, you know, the next 10, 20 years people are going to accept Indigenous peoples totally, but Indigenous people need to stand strong, use the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and assert our rights because that's how nations are created is by asserting their right. There's an opportunity for Indigenous startups and it's growing when we look at the history of it, how our businesses progressed. We really have some really big issues around uh, protecting culture and knowledge. You know, for Indigenous businesses, there needs to be really important conversations around how you set up your, your business. Like what I love about Michaela's work is that, um, you know, she's built it all on her own country and culture and that it links back into her as a person and and that's what I'm doing as well with Indigilab, making sure that I'm linked into Indigenous communities to have more input into how we 
self-determine in the use of technologies. Michaela, what do you see as the future for Indigenous technology, communities, culture and businesses, as Luke was just talking about? It's very difficult to be optimistic when the World Economic Forum said this year that if the same rate of progress continues, it will take another 257 years to close the global gender equality gap. So that's for thinking about 52% of the global population as women. So when we compare those statistics to how uh, far behind Indigenous communities are in achieving the same equality as Western communities in this country. I think it's very optimistic to think that we could do it in one lifetime, I think, but we've got to try, right? And I think something that I've learned along the way in growing in digital is maybe we just don't compete in the same game. Maybe we create an entirely new game where we can build everything from our cultural knowledge, language and law and our ways of knowing, being and doing and not actually compete with what's already been established and created in a Western man's world. We're looking at how do we create an entirely new game where we don't have to be benchmarked against what they say is where we should be. I think that's the exciting part of what gets me out of bed every morning and my team. We're inventing the future and we don't have to be held hostage to what's already been created and a mould that's already been prepared for us. We're hoping to well, we're out doing something different. And that can be difficult for people to understand why we run the business the way that we do and why we do the work that we do. But at its core, it's about self-determination. And that means looking at the way that we physically run the business. Yes, we stick to all the rules of ASIC. We have all our Western legal structure processes in place, but we also work with our legal team and say, okay, well, we actually don't want to do that. Culturally, we would lean into seasonality. So we're going to do that with our staff leave structure. We're going to make sure that people are able and enabled to go and do cultural responsibility duties without abrogating our employment law. So how do we reframe that? So everything that we do is really anchored around how we would like to continue our cultures and where we see that uh, the cultural strength that we can bring to running a business can be played out. That type of future excites me. I think it sounds exciting, not just for you and all the different Indigenous communities, but for, for all of us. Michaela and Luke, thank you so much for today. I really, I found it an education and enlightening and I want to say thank you for your generosity of time and knowledge and the stories that you shared as well. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you, Sarah, and thanks, Luke, for a great discussion on things that we're so passionate about. You've been listening to Techcetera, a podcast about the intersection of technology, culture, etc. This podcast was produced by Ericsson. For 130 years and counting, Ericsson has been innovating to deliver the best of mobile connectivity and broadband to billions of people around the world, driving positive change in every sector of our society. To find out more, head to our website at ericsson.com. To guarantee you don't miss an episode of Techcetera, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Sarah Goss, and I'll be back next episode with more Techcetera. Techcetera.